Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Colin Baker, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the exhausting task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations, because of course Axos is exhausted. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have a sometimes exhausted four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. I'm so casual. Hello. <laughs> so casual. <laughs> and so exhausted. We're walking in the uh, heat. Full of sushi. Full of sushi. <laughs> we also have our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. So much Sushi. So much sushi. So little time. <laughs> and this time we have a special guest, one of our favorite celebrity panelists, and a newly married man, Trey Corte. Hello. Baby. The nutrition cycle is complete <laughs> with the sushi. <laughs> exactly right. Ooh, or will be once we get that burp out. Before we get to talking about the book, let's talk briefly about our Patreon page. Uh, depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've started giving them to the homeless to build shelters out of. They really work well. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, and the Video Junkyard Podcast. And I particularly would like to say happy birthday to Rick Taylor because we are recording on his birthday. Oh. So happy birthday, Thanks, Rick. Thanks, guys, and happy birthday. Absolutely. We also have our Goodreads discussion book where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with our discussion of another season eight novelization, The Claws of Axos. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who The Claws of Axos, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, aired from 3.13.71 to 4.3.71, published by Target Books in April 1977. As of this recording in July of 2019, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 141 pages. So, we have not one, but three biographies to catch up with this time. Damn it all. First of all, there's Richard Franklin, 
born January 15, 1936, who played Captain Yates until 1974, and who reprised the role with the first set of audio dramas that Tom Baker ever starred in. And I can't remember what those were called. Hornet's Nest? Was yes, that the it? Nest Cottage That's it. Chronicles it wasn't, by Paul Mars. And yeah, then... it wasn't Big Finish at all. It was BBC, no. and it was their first dip into the water with full cast audio drama, and it's bizarre. But Very we'll surreal. To, yeah, we'll have to talk <laughs> about that later on, since... Tom Baker never appeared with Captain Yates. I was going to ask, does he endure that long as a character? No. He, this is him by one story, yeah. strangely enough. In addition to an early career in advertising, he trained at RADA, did a ton of rep, as so many RADA graduates do, and later in his career directed several stage productions, including one-man show featuring Yates, believe it or not. He's even written a book featuring Yates as the main character, originally called The Killing Stone, but later revised as Operation H-A-T-E, with all the Who references removed from it, for some reason, so it could make some money on it, I guess. He remains relatively active in acting, having appeared as one of the Death Star engineers in Rogue One. Hmm. In a kind of blink if you then you'll miss him type of role. But... The ones that get kind of, kind of massacred and shot down. and Yeah. Exactly. Elderly scientists looking exactly. yeah. confused and bewildered. You know, way back when I forgot when we were still reading Ian and Barbara books, I forgot to tell you that William Russell was in the first Superman movie as one of the Kryptonians. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's right there. And it's like, oh my god, that's awesome. that's fucking Chesterton. I, I had no idea about that. Yeah, he's awesome, cool. but I don't think he has a speaking part. I think he has one line if he does. Two men who would have just as long an association with Doctor Who, are the writers of this story, Bob Baker and Dave Martin, a writing team who started submitting scripts to the production office way back. This story was one of several storylines they submitted, and up until far into production, it was known as The Vampire from Space, to the point that titles cards for the first two episodes were generated with that title. Together, they'd go on to write eight more stories together, and Baker would do a ninth one on his own. One of those stories, The Invisible Enemy, is noteworthy for having introduced K-9 to the series. Arguably their most popular creation, probably their most lucrative, because they got a kickback every time he appeared. Bob Baker also went on to co-author several Wallace and Gromit films, and Dave Martin unfortunately died in March of 2007. A couple of other points of interest about this one. When it was being filmed, there was a sudden snowstorm, and since the story was meant to be set later in the year, a line was added about access creating freak weather conditions. Hmm. That line is missing entirely from the novelization because there's no point in it. It's also the first story in the Pertwee era to feature the TARDIS interior. And finally, among a few other notable guest stars, one went on to become particularly famous, the late Tim Pickett Smith, played the part of Captain Harker. Um. Which is, by the way, a Bram Stoker reference. I was going to ask if it was. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. In fact, there are a few of those in the story. It's uh, kind of nice if you've read Dracula well, several times. Well, if it's called The Vampires from Space, then that would It'd be have to be there, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, Trey, I'm going to let you do the honors with the back cover, such as it is. All right. Axos calling Earth. Axos calling Earth. The creature stood before them. Beautiful, golden humanoids offering friendship and the priceless axonite in return for what? Only Doctor Who remains suspicious. What is the real reason for the axon's sudden arrival on Earth? And why is the evil master a passenger on their spaceship? He very soon finds out. Yes. Interesting way of describing a passenger. 
But yeah, this is the cover, and if I remember correctly, that's the first edition. It may be a reprint mm -hmm. of the first edition, because it was one of the first ones to have the uh, Tom Baker logo. Right. Yeah. So I think it's maybe number two or three of those. Pretty early. Yeah, because they still are featuring the Doctor's face on the cover, mm -hmm. which they stopped doing pretty early on. Yeah. I'm so worried. He, well, he should be, because look at that shit. Those, those of you at home, I'm pointing to an Axon figure that uh, Trey brought with him. In fact, you will see pictures of all these lovely figures from his uh, toy collection on our website. He brought all of the Axos uh, characters with him. I mean, from the cover, you'd think it's going to be a, a, a very... A very real, dark story about the doctor dealing with clinical depression and anxiety <laughs> and despair. <laughs> Looks like a, a bit of a, of a drunken vagrant here. <laughs> really not the most flattering of portraits. No, unfortunately it isn't. And what's really annoying is the reprint of the novelization. Yeah, here it is. The axons are green. Oh, that's mm. right. That was the version that I had it originally. And it's because there's a later story where they took the costume and spray painted it green. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so the artist, they, 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 he had the wrong reference photo because it was from a different story. So he, the accents are green too. Yeah, they, so the accents became green and that always kind yes. of bugged me. So Yeah, bugged me too because I was like, why, why is a crinoid on the cover of Paws of Access? Right. It shouldn't be. You right. have that greatest American hero hair. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, uh, John Pertwee's uh, centenary was just the other day. Oh, yes, it was. His 100th birthday, and his son recorded a video message and everything after dressing up as him and causing lots of people to say, oh my God, please play the third doctor. That would be fun. I, that would be. I'm sure he's dealt with that for the last 20 years or so. He really has. Because and now Gotham's over, he's available. He is available, and he has kind of left that door open a little bit and said, yeah, I wouldn't mind it. Asian to it. Yeah. We watched Tudors the other day, and I didn't remember that he dies in the first scene. I didn't remember oh, he was yeah. in it at all, because he doesn't last very long. No, but. he doesn't. Speaking of lasting long, how about this book? <laughs> first impressions. You thought it was going to be about the Doctor's depression. <laughs> I loved it. This is actually one of my favorite ones I've read. Seriously? Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, so why does that shock you? I'm, it I'm really shocked me, yes. because Tell me why. this is the most enthusiastic you've been about a book in a while. Yes, I haven't been this into one for a while. What is it about it that you like? Well, I think a lot of it can be circumstantial, because remember last summer I literally read one on the beach and loved it as well. So mm -hmm. sometimes things just hit you right, and I had a little extra time to read it. Um, I thought it was the best paced dicks that we've read mm -hmm. in terms of structure of plot, where a lot of times stories get off to a really interesting start, and then the story sort of peters out towards the end. Mm -hmm. But it, it had a lot of plot machinations in a way that were genuinely entertaining mm. and not just a slog mm -hmm. to get through. And I thought this was him performing at his peak of chemistry and character moments. Right. Just for example, it starts off with this really nice series of two or three pages where it starts with, uh, uh, it moves through the silent blackness of deep space like a giant jellyfish through the depths of the sea, which meant that I had Jack Johnson's yes. song with the lyrics, move <laughs> like a jellyfish, rhythm is nothing. <laughs> you go with the flow, you don't stop. 
the rest of this on. But then it cuts over to uh, the technicians detecting this, and you know, Ransom is just fantasizing about having a con comet named after him, which is new and, to the novelization. Which and is then we cut over to the brigadier's problems with bureaucracy and fantasizing about having Chen executed. <laughs> and then we go over to the doctor and Joe. I just thought it was a really nice uh, initial setting of the scene with little character moments that uh, actually. Stayed strong throughout the entire book. Mm. And even though I knew the master was going to be involved, which totally makes sense for me for marketing purposes when they are releasing these so out of order. Mm. You want people to know, oh, the master's in this. You yeah. like the master. You want to read a story about the master. Even though I knew that was coming, came in a way I didn't expect. He's a prisoner. So I just yeah. thought it was a lot of fun. Okay. So. Terrific. Yeah, reading the back of the book, it made it seem like the master was in on something. Yeah. But yeah, when you see that he's actually been taken prisoner by them, it's like, Oh. Sort of flying by the seat of his pants. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I thought that this that this one had a lot more effective humor mm -hmm. than 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 oh, has pulled off with this doctor That's to this true. point. That wasn't so corny or forced as we saw it mm -hmm. sometimes before with Trotton Doctor and then so I'll I'll but, hush up now a little no, bit. No, but yes, but I thought it was it was a sort of perfect summer adventure. Yeah. Yeah. And still retain some of those horror elements we've had for the yes. last two or three stories. Yeah, Bob Baker and Dave Martin are particularly good at that. And mixing it with comedy. As you'll see in later scripts, because we've got another eight yeah, we'll enjoy I mean, as as a <clears throat> writing duo, and I'd say even with Bob Baker's solo story. Their, their tragic flaw is they've got these incredible imaginations and the budget, when you watch a lot of their stories on screen, the budget often struggles to keep up with their imagination. Yes. Mm -hmm. But there's, they've, they, I would say out of all the writers, they're the ones who are always aiming for some like really big sci-fi concepts. Like mm -hmm. the, the world that they create in the next story that's by them is hugely big sci-fi concept. Execution on screen, eh. Yeah. But there's the imaginations there, but they've also, they, they do a lot of like satirical humor because this one has it, the next one certainly has it. True. Because um, you've got Rush Limbaugh as a guest star on that one. <laughs> yeah. um, and and that's one of the things I, I like about it. I like, but it's also one of the things that frustrates, you know, it's a fun story. I think this is this is what Doctor Who can be. There's It's fun, it's scary. Mm -hmm. Plot isn't the most inventive thing in the world. It's it's a basically an alien invasion, mm -hmm. and I have some issues with the plot. And this is kind of like I think I was rewatching it last night, watching the uh, info text, and like this was kind of like their first script, and they were yeah. kind of, and you can see where there's there's some moments where I would say this this you could have just done this as a rewrite, and this would make a lot more sense. Yeah, but this was like but, a fifth or sixth, sixth draft by that Yeah, because it was going to be a six-parter and everything. But I, I think, overall, it, I think that as a novelization, it works for all the reasons Allison said. I think one of the things, and I think this is where our perspectives, where you haven't seen these, where I was disappointed with the book mm. is I showed you that clip of, like, the really psychedelic, trippy yes, stuff. Yes, terrific, mm -hmm. yes. And, you know... The way and just how alien and otherworldly Axos looks on the television version and the interior of it and all the weird superimposition of like lava lamp effects and yeah. pulsing walls and <laughs> all this and floating heads going around and some of the really ethereal, creepy, scary sound yeah. effects. Right. Like none of that is captured. I don't even know if it would be possible to translate it onto the page without slowing the pace down sure. horribly. But there, there is a feeling of like, this is fun, but for me, this is one with the TV version, just because the director and the designers are all 
there's there's some corny music, but I think there's it's it's very otherworldly. It's very trippy. It's very early seventies, mm-hmm. and at four episodes, it doesn't outstay its welcome. Right. And some of those trippy, visually appealing moments are not present in the novelization. And this is how I knew you and I were going to disagree. Because I've always hated the, the story on screen. Mm. Not the story, but the way it's shot. I think it's one of the most poorly edited. There's some shots in there that make no sense. I, I hate the trippiness because it dates it. Nothing says 1973 like putting a lava lamp over somebody who's having a seizure on screen. Um, and doing all that the director does. Because I know that director is capable of better. I've seen it in the other stories. That being said, I love the book. Mm-hmm. I actually think the book is mm. an improvement on the televised mm. version, yeah. so I knew we'd be kind of mirroring well, like, Particularly that scene, the, the one that you showed us, <laughs> watching it, it's like, well, that's not scary. Reading about it, though, it's like, oh, God, they're going to get crushed in there. The, thing, the mm-hmm. access is just going to absorb them. What's going to happen? You know, describing the way Joe just, like, jumps out at the very end on yeah. screen. It was just like, that was a fucking door. Like, she just walked out of that. And I, I wonder, too, if there's a little bit of, like, a nostalgia factor. Because I, I, when I first saw this, this is one of the first John Pertwee's I saw. Mm-hmm. Because it was weird. Like, the first batch of Pertwee's, they didn't do every single story. Yeah, it was, like, Inferno, Inferno and then, and then Axos. And those two together were, like, the most terrifying Doctor Who stories for me. And I had, I had recurring... Like, there's, like, there's really scary nightmares you have as a kid, and then there's the fun nightmares. <laughs> they're they're yeah. scary at the time, but then afterwards yeah. you're like, oh, that was a fun dream, you know? <laughs> like, because, like, when they, child, the, when they would shoot these tentacles out, this would come out, and then the screen, like, it would extend, and it could reach you far. So you couldn't really even outrun them. There's sequences of, like, the soldiers, like, trying mm. to outrun them, but they just shoot this tentacle, and it latches <laughs> on, like, boom. And just to me, like, the howling and the weird noises that are in it, that... That scared me, and those are actually a lot of the same sound effects from Inferno. True, and the sound design I like. I don't like the and music, so, as you said. It's right, the, and so I had a like. This was one of the ones that was like, <laughs> you know, as a kid, like you watch something that's kind of scary enough. Like Dark Crystal was the same yeah. way for me, yeah. and I liked being scared. It was just scary enough for me, yeah. which. And then the book, I'm like, oh, I, I don't have that feeling yeah. of. of I feel like it's very different types of peril being described yeah. because in the book it was very very much a sci-fi menace beat the clock stay focused but the the clip that Trey showed us I said was sort of like a a manifestation of stomach uh, illness or, you know, <laughs> well, it's, sort of, well it's, it's body horror <coughs> it, it has a visual of disorientation well, and it was a very I thought it was actually really alarming but it was a different kind of thickened diary it can be like a storm are, raging outside your house and at the end they're belched out of the complex <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it felt really well, and, the, and, the, and <laughs> it was the disorientation was I thought tremendous in the visual yeah. oh yeah and, and yeah. the it was going to be a lot more horrific on screen like oh, you, on the DVD you can see like when like the pigman Josh's, you know, he his face cracks and deflates, mm. and same thing with Windsor later on. They actually filmed a lot more elaborate, and it was mm. considered too graphic. Mm. And so they they the, yeah. the broadcast version they kind of white it out, but you can see the original takes oh, on the DVD really? special features. I haven't seen that DVD, and it is creepy as anything. It's I'm not sure. unlike the Hemovores oh, and Fenric. But you get much more impression of you know it's very hot and yeah. oppressive as well, mm. and more of a psychological well, panic. And and like as a kid, because like when like when they're being held in there, um, 
by the, the literal claws of Axos. It's like they're on their backs and they're being laying down. So like, you know, you have those nightmares where you're being held down and smothered yeah, and there's a sense of like, and they try to, and they get up and as soon as they move, it just gets even tighter. Yeah. And like, that's constrictive and it's all organic looking yeah. and it's... I, it is effective. Yeah. It but is effective. I think it was in, having only seen that scene that Trey showed us, an effective adaptation in that you extremely difficult to do psychedelic no. scenes like that in um, prose yeah. in, in prose so I think he really did an effective adaptation of he gave us a different kind of fear mm-hmm. yeah. a different terror yeah, but it does make it a different story totally so effective oh absolutely as a matter of fact what I'm doing right now is trying to bring up uh, BritBox on the other machine <laughs> so that you can actually possibly see a few more sequences from it what else? What else appealed? What else did you find was lacking? I mean, Trina said that it's lacking because you're not getting... But I think... I don't know if it's... Like, I'll just use this as an example. And I think... And again, this is where... This is probably maybe the fault of the original script. Mm-hmm. But there were things where I felt like... Like, I really like the moment with Hardiman um, before he dies and he's a minor character he's a supporting character but he's given this dignity where he's trying to fix the things and he says mm-hmm. there's all there's almost something comforting about being back instead of being the director doing mm-hmm. that fixing the pipes and he kind of does this noble self-sacrifice because mm-hmm. the reactor's about to explode mm-hmm. but then he does this noble self-sacrifice and then we've still got 20 pages left and in the tv series this is also happens in episode four and then yeah. this eric center someone who's his assistant basically pops up and then there's going to be another meltdown. And I think if you're on a budget, remove the Erickson character and then have Hardiman there to when the axons are there. And then for the very last meltdown, that's when you do his sort of noble self-sacrifice. Yeah. You save yourself a character. He, he becomes a little bit more. And there's just like a little fixes like that that just seemed, you know, this this minor character of Erickson who kind of pops up out of nowhere. And it's like we're, we're almost at the end of the story. Now we have this, this new guy giving new exposition when you had a perfectly good character who would have been there. And it's there's moments like that. And I've... I've got some issues with the structure of the story. Um, Don't have to be feeling need to figure that shot out. <laughs> That's <laughs> have access coming at you when you see the uh, Tony showing us alarming things on the monitor. Yeah, we're watching a version of episode one without the uh, sound on. We're watching for... an early Guar video. <laughs> <laughs> I like even it's pulsing there. Oh, yeah. I've never noticed it's that a, before. It's a it is throbbing. It is a little bit. Yeah. Oh, I love that lettering. <laughs> top, top secret. Top secret. Very groovy folder. Com- comic Sans or something. I think there's a great theme involving greed. Oh, yeah. That runs through this story and the dangers of greed. and But then there's all sorts of mixed signals it gets. Chin is greedy, but then by trying to isolate things in the UK, he's mm-hmm. at, his greed has actually helped the situation a little bit. Right. And there's these little ironies. And on one level, you know, you've got this interesting bit at the beginning where the doctor's like, you're just going to shoot at it, find out what it is. But then he, beco- almost immediately, he becomes a suspicious one. Mm-hmm. And that seems really inconsistent. And then you've got this whole, oh, gee, they're posing as asylum seekers. <laughs> and, and like, yes, there, there is, there could be a subtext yeah. there yeah. of, like, these people are coming for help. And you could do a reading of, like, oh, people who are coming to our land asking for help in asylum True. really have ulterior motives, which... 
plays very much into a you know the right wing mm. fantasy. But I think they were trying to do you know the friendly invasion. Let's do a spit on the alien invasion, make him seem mm. benevolent. And the energy crisis. There and the energy crisis in the area seventies. That's a really good point. So where is the doctor on this? We know, and again, like you mentioned in your notes, that opening shot where you see the scary monsters. That's not in the book. That's not in the original script. You actually get surprised. You know that because like when I was watching on the DVD, it says that shot's not there. But mm-hmm. so it's like we know because they kill the old man and everything else, and we know they're bad. The doctor knows they're bad. Yeah. Chen doesn't know they're bad, but he's an asshole anyway. So like, <laughs> there, yeah. I, I, there's just some things like that that don't quite work for me. Hmm. In terms of story, okay, it's an example I think of the difference between a '70s story and a story from the '90s onward, where so we've talked about before the classic examples of this are Westworld and Battlestar Galactica, oh, yeah. where the, the originals, the robots are evil; they are here mm-hmm. to kill everybody. There's nothing sympathetic, and the reboots are much more about like what sure. what does it mean to be human? What's the line? When do you start having sentience and right to survive? And I don't think you'd have a modern story where you would have um, aliens who are accused of being purely parasitic and in fact are purely (laughs) parasitic. I think in a a modern story you might still have a lot of the same events, but at the end you would have the Doctor trying to give them an opportunity to find a sustainable way that they can stay alive without destroying other planets. And they might reject that and turn it down, but we would at least have it as an option that they could find some yes. sor- non-destructive or, source of life I and energy. absolutely or, see the 10th Doctor but they saying, might decide, I gave you a chance. Right. Yeah. And they might decide that that would be no fun at all, right. but it would at least, within the universe of the story, be a possibility. Or, or today I could see it like becoming more of a morality tale where you'd have the characters like Chin and Windsor, and they become the villains that like... Tempting the greedy inhabitants of whatever planet they're feeding off of mm-hmm. is just Axis's MO. Mm-hmm. But really, the real danger, not unlike, like, say, Power of the Daleks, where, like, right. the Daleks, like, are appealing to the humans' baser emotions. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, we're just kind of this creature that needs to feed, and that, but we'll, we'll exploit your worst greed itself. Because that's kind of what they're doing with, mm-hmm. um, with this, and it kind of backfires on them. But I think, I think the human element of the the va- I think the petty vanity of Chin really gets to me oh, and God. and I like the way he's made fun of and the doctor's got that great line where he's like I've got a duty to my country and it's like but not to the world you know and that's <laughs> yeah. like whoa that, that blow that, lands not yeah. to the galaxy yeah. yeah and I think I think that's another way it could be updated it's not that yeah they're the monsters but what they're the global warming so to speak but <laughs> what's enabling the, the global warming right. And it's, it's, it's the an incompetent lead. politician. Well, yeah. and power mad. <laughs> but they're not the global warming in that they are not impersonal and just predatory because they're mindless. They're they're intentionally deceptive. Mm-hmm. They're not just a force of nature. They are intentionally setting planets up to be destroyed by pretending to yes. offer gifts. So it's a little darker than just you know swarm of locusts come in. They don't have ill intent. They don't have any moral intent at all. They're just here to eat because that's what they are and all they can do. They are actively evil in a way that I thought was a weird combination. I was confused why they even interacted with the humans. Like, oh, why not just come down land and and just fucking eat everything? I thought they couldn't (laughs) distribute the The axiom around the axiom around the planet without help. That's what they say, but like, but. Their technology is otherwise so sophisticated, <laughs> you think they'd have figured out a way to spray it up for right. a well, or something. Better. You get the impression, 
that they are so hungry at this point and so depleted in energy that they can't do that, that they might normally they land They needed on the, the power reactors or whatever. Exactly, and then just wow. explode <laughs> all over the place or whatever they do. Tony now has old Josh on screen, and we've just seen the most delightful shot of him throwing the bike. Oh, you should it put the volume on for old Josh. Oh, yeah. His dialogue. You should hear how old Josh talks. Pretty yeah. fit if he can heave it over his head like that. He's that got was a, some good physical he's comedy. Even, he's <laughs> even got a theme tune. Yeah, the other does. thing, too, though, is if they can make energy from any matter, why do they have to come to Earth? Well, that's like well, that was like the Doctor's skepticism from the get-go. Let's see if we get Pigman Josh's... Yeah. Well, find the bit where he's exploring and he's like, R? R? It's probably what we were just looking at. Nope, 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 it's later. It's later? Yeah, it's when he's first finding the... Discovering Axos and get sucked in. It's the next scene with him, I think. There we go. Yeah. I can bump it up (laughs) His dialogue is amazing. If you can call it that. Well, I think he is in the book so mad that they put in this installation yeah. between yeah. him and the pub. Well, Dix does something that they can't do with this character on screen. He gives him a background. He gives him intelligence. Where is he, he going? Him, yeah. Whereas here he's basically comic relief until he's not. Until he's killed. Until he dies horribly. Yeah. Until he dies very horribly. And in the script, it's it's Pigbin Josh, yes. and this is old Josh. Yes, he's not a Pigbin. Yeah, he's not a Pigbin because he's not a he's a disgruntled resident rather than just some homeless guy going by. Right. But yes, this is a national emergency. No, no, he's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. They don't really say as much on the shack. I thought. Because he's mad because he has to bicycle around the installation two miles out of the way to go from his shack to the pub. Oh, that's right. But he's going to the pub. Yes. So he's got money to go to the pub. That's why I was considering it. uh, I was afraid this would happen. This is the episode we'd all just sit and watch it. Peppermint patty. But we are getting into that bit. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I said he had a peppermint patty. What? It was kind of Andy Cat. <laughs> and then the shiny yeah, anus a little, opens. <laughs> a little less dignified than the adaptation. Oh, you haven't seen Lack of Dignity yet. <laughs> oh. Just wait, here he comes. And he's offering to demonstrate a lack of dignity to us. And soon it's going to prolapse. Oh. There it goes. Oh, wow. That is very anatomical. Yeah. I don't feel so good. <laughs> Tapeworm! <laughs> ah! Thank you, that was quite horrifying. <laughs> okay, we can stop. Yeah, it's just because like, ah, 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 ah. It's just because. We cut over to Blues Brothers. So, yeah. Little <laughs> <laughs> Bill Filer's, oh my gosh, he does look like a Blues Brother. The, really uh, the fashion choices. <clears throat> And he's described by Dix as having a pleasantly ugly face, and really that fits that character because Bill Filer is not a looker in any way, and not even that much of an American on screen, to be honest. First time they've had an American character in the books, it wasn't like vaguely offensive. That's true. <laughs> like the first one who was actually kind of an interesting character and had a personality beyond. It's an American, it's a savage on That's the loose, true. it's a troll. 
There's a fun idea about like the American FBI having to deal with the master. Or like the American branch of unit, like that's something oh, that yes. like I would, would love be, to see those stories. The, yeah, the, there, there is there is like some spinoff potential. And the weird thing is, it sounds like they must have defeated him, or at least got him to a standstill at one point. There was at one point because yeah, because yeah, Washington's involved with the Master Manhunt. Yeah, you know, because mm-hmm. as we are, can already see this season, the Master has his fingers in many pies all at once. But he's not that powerful yet in a way that no. makes him more entertaining and interesting. I think. But, yeah. You know, this is a connection I haven't. I've just recently made about Bob Baker and Dave Martin's stuff. Because um, we were talking about, I'm still debating whether or not Axos is evil, or whether if this is their feeding cycle, this is just what they do, and they just have. Because like, yeah, like they they decoy. But even in the animal world, you'll have like predators having decoys to lure certain yeah. things in, and is that kind of like just an advanced version? Because and another story, Invisible mm-hmm. Enemy, like there's that discussion with the doctor yeah, and the virus, the virus, like doesn't a virus have a light, right to exist? And the difficulty there is sentience. When we talk about right. animals doing it, that that's an instinct. They really have nothing that they can reason with to keep them from doing it. Axos is capable of reason. The virus is capable of reason. So you should be able to talk them out of it and say, hey, here's this other alternative. You don't have to infect or suck the life out of us. You can go over here. I'm just saying life cycles are a are theme True. that Bob Baker returns to because it's in Nightmare yeah. of Eden. It's in The Mutants. It it's really in um, right. Underworld a little, to a little bit. Oh, extent. my God, it is. Um, yeah. Hand of Fear a little bit. Nope. So they're coming up with alien life cycles mm-hmm. is something that is kind of one of their go-to. A trope. Is it a trope of theirs? It's absolutely a trope of theirs. Very so, good. Yeah. And I've just picked up on that just now. See? Insights. That's what you <laughs> come to this podcast for. <laughs> so what about uh, what Allison was about to say? Well, I was going to say, we were ta- Troy was talking about the, um, the sort of anti-immigrant, anti-refugee overtones as well. I don't know how much of this is intentionally brought into the story and how much mm-hmm. of it is our, us reading our present situation right. back on the story, but... There's been a lot of comment recently on how we've, on a sort of global level, fall into this sort of horrific situation where human rights are associated with citizenship. Yeah. Instead of truly human rights. Mm-hmm. And there is this sort of grotesque idea in here that, well, so this is obviously a much more serious situation we're talking about today, but for example, the Rohingya ethnic group, I'm oh, not yeah. pronouncing it correctly, um, you know, were stripped of their citizenship in Myanmar in 1982, mm. referred to as, oh, Bangladeshi, but these are people who were not born in Bangladesh, yeah. have never lived there, so they don't have citizenship officially in any country, therefore going to be treated anyway. There's this sort of ugly concept here where it specifically said they don't really come from anywhere in someone's response, where everyone comes from somewhere. Yes. Which all, you know, well, they may have originally had a planet, but it's long gone. Mm. They just go around roving and consuming, and it's actually a really grotesque this concept. Sort of. Yeah, that they are inherently rapacious. And in the book, it's hard to see how you would deal with them other than by destroying them or doing what they do, which is basically put them in stasis as yeah. well. Yeah, putting them on the time loop seems to be the thing to do. Kind of a, a gross idea in the same way that you look back at original Star Trek, well, or even early Who, it's really not the best sci-fi development ever to just have entire evil species and good species <laughs> as a model for society. This is something right. similar where it's actually not a great social concept. Yeah. To have a species that can only consume, has no home, 
they can't and won't do anything else, and they're intentionally malevolent about Interesting. it. Interesting. Well, Especially, I was going to say, is it even really a species if it's one entity? Well, we don't know how many things of access are running well, around the universe. Well, I mean, they come the, back in the audio dramas. But it's it's this access that it's comes back. It's this one that comes and, back. Um, okay. Like, basically what happens in... It's a story called The Feast of Axos. It's a Six Doctor Evelyn story. And it's early 21st century, and, like, somehow these British explorers, kind of like Elon Musk types, oh. are aware that it's out there, and it could be the source of power, and they've figured out a way to breach the time loop. Because, like, even if it's a time loop, like, if you're going through a time loop, you're still, like, can be... Like, every so often, Axos can be approached or something, right. so they're planning, like, this rocket launch or something to intercept access oh, at a certain point. Elon it's Musk a, wants to tap into this power to create a high-speed rail between O'Hare and downtown and accidentally destroys the Milky Way. Yeah, like, and, and there's, like, something... <laughs> I'd read that, yes. <laughs> and so, power yeah, so it's... cheap. <laughs> and then they do, a, like, a replicant of mm-hmm. the Sixth Doctor the way they do Filer. Oh, really? And, but he's kind of, like, the cover has him kind of, like, like this axonoid sort of thing, oh, wow. and it's, but it's 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 well done, and they got Bernard Holly to do the voice of Axos mm-hmm. again. And we are Axos. We know you. You are the Doctor. Doctor, no, no. We are Axos. You are the Doctor. We have slept, but now we wake. Please, you're in my mind. Get out. Get out of my mind! We are Axos. We are Axos. We are Axos. You will sleep, Doctor. Sleep like Axos has slept. While you sleep, you will be replicated. Your mind will be shared by Axos. Your knowledge will belong to Axos. The Doctor's body print is now part of Axos. I am the Doctor. I am Axos. I am Axos. We are both Axos. I'm Brian! I'm Brian! I'm Brian and so's my wife! And there's also an, an 11th Doctor Amy Pond comic. Oh, really? In the magazine called The Golden Ones, which was set in Tokyo. And they had, like, this new beverage, like, this golden beverage that was, like, I guess Axon juice or something. That was, like, while all the kids were drinking. And then at the end, they turn it, like, these, you know, Japanese children turn into Axons and they're roaming Tokyo. And it's all, and they somehow reverse it all. But Where do you get Axon juice from? From that I don't bulbous want eye? To. I don't want to know. <laughs> Ooh, that's disgusting and biological. <laughs> so, what about the characterization in this book? How well does Dick sell us on the newer characters of Chin and Filer, and how do the regulars do? I know I've drawn this comparison before at least once, possibly three or four times, but I feel like Dick's at his best is similar to Peter David and his best, and that his strength is pairing different characters and seeing what sort of chemistry develops and yes. what dynamics and how they bounce off of one another. Mm-hmm. So I thought he had a terrific chemistry for the Master and the Doctor here mm-hmm. that before we knew was coming but didn't exist yet. Yeah. Um, and did a, a nice fake out with giving us Joe's perspective on the Doctor's plan with her sort of mounting anxiety of, oh, oh God, yes. we really don't know him. We really don't know his loyalties. We really don't know what he's going to do. Hmm. And that was a sort of interesting dynamic. And I thought Filer was was presented in an interesting way where I say the American character is not, not actually offensive usually, just 
kind of flat and condescending. So I thought yeah. it was terrific characterization for this kind of genre where you want some light humor, some good chemistry, but it's not pretentious. I think and interesting what you said about Joe because I feel like this story should have come before Mind of Evil because it seems like she doesn't know the Doctor as well yet as she does in Mind yeah. of Evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, Trey, go ahead. I was just going to echo what Allison was saying. Like, I think her example of um, the radar technician saying, I don't have a comet named after me. Yeah. One of the things that, like, with all the characters... <laughs> he just saying, floats off to La La Land yeah, anything about the great comet. Dix does a and really, then he dies. Dix does a really good job of giving, like, even minor characters a line or two of inner monologue or motivation that's just a character moment that makes them real. Yes. Without necessarily disrupting the flow of the story or, you know, because some of, like, Malcolm Hulk would probably give, like, three pages of the guy's backstory, which can be fun in its own way. Um, It's a different type of world building, but it does get, it does interrupt the action in a very Mm -hmm. action-oriented story. You don't want that. So I think he's, I think he does a good job of making these characters that are just kind of walk-on prop characters a little bit more believable. Gives them more depth. They're, they're not yeah. just totally flat. Mm-hmm. They're and not so, just bodies to, you know, be picked off by the villain of the To week. be killed. True, and it's more horrifying so if you have a character that's slightly more rounded to die yeah. rather than just some faceless extra. Well, it's a bit more of a surprise when it happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. much more. No, but even old Josh, you know, the, the fact that he's yeah. pissed off that this... Yeah. This... <laughs> Living his life, right. doing yeah, his like, thing, going about his business. Go yeah. two miles around to get to the bar. <laughs> Gonna have to wait on my pint, yeah. which he never gets. That's, that's his his moment of, uh, of insight into that. Well, at the beginning, character. the brigadier has a dynamic with Chen at first. It's more like he sometimes has with a doctor where he's just really annoyed with him. <laughs> and then, of course, the stakes are raised tenfold on that later yes. on. Oh, and yeah. now he appreciates the doctor more. And mm-hmm. I thought he is a re- recurring member of the ensemble was nicely handled here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Still don't know about Joe. Really? <laughs> She's not yeah. given much to do in this one except yeah. to be a damsel on distress. This is yeah. not the yeah. third? Yeah. Third? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, again, like, where the fuck is she at? It was a slightly refer. I think what the reason I liked Filer is Dix contains his worst impulses here. He starts with a detailed description of Filer that is has the amount of loving detail that he usually saves for the guest heroine. Yeah. <laughs> about how attractive <laughs> this person is or right. is not. Um, but Filer is kind of disapproving and amazed, uh, not that Joe is doing this as a woman, but because she's like 17 or 19 years old. I'm like, yeah. well, that's so much better than Dick. It, it really is. <laughs> Usually is. That was kind of refreshing in yeah. its own way. Yeah, like the, the one moment that Joe has is whenever they both leave to go do their own things, and she's like, all right, do I follow them or do I follow them? <laughs> yeah. And, like, that's about the only moment in here that is, is her, like, character development. And even then, it's just, like, she just goes to where the trouble is. Like, she yeah. has been doing. But at least she is a catalyst for what's to come. If it, yeah. if it isn't for certain things happening to her, then we wouldn't have other things happening in the plot. Yeah. And by this point, at least, we care enough about Joe that when she feels betrayed by the Doctor, we really feel it. Oh. Yeah, I felt that was the development of her, was her mm-hmm. point of view. We, we have her perspective. Yes, that and that's actually in addition to the novelization, because she feels that later in the story. But he also has her feeling it very early on in the story, too, which I think develops it quite nicely. Joe's an interesting one, because she... She will get character development. Yes, and it's a I've slow. Heard. It's a slow just, burn. It's like, a slow burn. Um, yeah. And considering for this period of the show's history, it's actually 
surprisingly well done, but it... Um, I'm sorry, I have to take a photo of that. There is a concept <laughs> Oh, you just noticed? I just noticed it. That's Lethbridge hilarious. Stuart loves... <laughs> yeah. I am some golden backside. Anyway, Allison, sorry. <laughs> oh, no. Maybe she has a sense that she's consistently underestimated. <laughs> I, I can't compete with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Some some rude things are going on with the action figures now. Rude I'm, in the British sense, I, I, not I, I really cannot take Crude photos of from that. Rude American, Americanism. Because even though we're not exactly family friendly, we do have to post these to Facebook. Um, <laughs> so, Joe, obviously. Did we buy whether or not the Doctor actually was uh, had gone rogue? Did we feel like he was suddenly... We knew there was something... He wasn't saying. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not going to turn evil. That's it's not that kind of a story. It's a right. series, not a standalone. But it wasn't the easy fake out. It was a more complex fake out. Yeah, because whenever you know they're talking about, well, the doctor really is kind of annoyed that he's still stuck here on Earth. It's like, well, yeah, maybe he could really be like trying to actually escape if he has the master there to help him. But it's also like he's not that type of person. He wouldn't. I don't know. It's like, I've read enough of these now where it's like, he's not actually doing that. He has ulterior moments, (laughs) but even I was like, I don't know what those are, though. Yeah, But he might save Earth and then use it as his escape hatch and leave without saying goodbye. Exactly, which... And here he leaves leaves saying goodbye, but leaves them in the lurch, which is how we know, no, there's no way he could have done that. Yeah. Instead, he's delivering... Well, he doesn't exactly deliver the master to them, does he? Just kind of drops him off and says, Adios, amigo, I'm going to put these guys in the time loop. Which is much more convincing on the page, again, than it is uh, on screen. Because on the screen, Pertwee is in the middle of this rugby scrim on the uh, console. Which I think is one of the oddest visuals that this show ever served up. You know, when the Axons are oh, covering him yeah, with their body. Yeah, and yeah. And it's like, wait, why are they in the TARDIS and why are they rubbing up against him like that? And yeah, it was, it's something like that. Like, it's, it <laughs> is, no, this is, this is basically what it is. Yeah, it's, with three you know, of them. He's, yeah. They're he's triple teaming him and he's trying to reach, yes, yeah. and he's trying to reach a switch on the console, but Dix, of course, does not do that in the book because, of course, they're not in the TARDIS with him, so it's, you know, it's kind yeah. of odd. Ah, yeah. What else? Because we do tend to do this when we like the book. We tend to run out of things to talk about very quickly. quote I have here is, Joe cowered away from the terrifying scrutiny of the eye of Axos, and they're learning about this terrible plan to eviscerate the Earth. The Doctor, however, was quite calm listening to the voice with an expression of polite disinterest, or sorry, polite interest, rather like a guest with whose host insists on telling him some rather lengthy anecdote. <laughs> that was an example of several nice moments they had where I thought they hit this this particular Doctor's humor mm-hmm. nicely. Well, I, I love, I mean, I love all the Doctors, but I love the Pertwee Doctor, and there was a period where he was getting a little bit of a bad rep in the 90s. Yeah. Because he was seen as this conservative establishment because he worked with the military. Yes, I remember having which, that argument with you. <laughs> and it's like, he's not. Like, he, he might work with the military, but he's he's... About his anti-establishment, he's got this superficial trap. And it's like I was at the club, I was this, but like right. then he's got like you've got a duty to the world, not just to your country. And he's, in a way, I find that very inspiring for me. Um, that I I connect to it a lot. Like being a teacher 
and working in a very conservative school district in the region of the country. Mm-hmm. And yet, and, and working with them, but still trying to be able to influence, but in a way that doesn't, I don't know, I really, you know, but I, I really admire that about the third doctor. And I, I like a little bit of his, you know, he, he's, he can be arrogant, but he kind of gets away with it because he's got it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, let yeah. me explain to this to yeah. you in very simple terms. <laughs> or, can you believe the man's an idiot? And like, and like, so like, where, I, where I'm going with this is the interactions with Chin and Windsor, because we've all dealt with people like oh, that. The, the, the bureaucratic busybody who's just given a little bit more power mm-hmm. than they should have. The, 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 the vain person who's, well, who's going to get credit for the project? It's yeah. like, well, you will. <laughs> you know, who's going to leave? Yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I like um, the character beats. And one of the things I was just pondering is I almost think it's like a lost opportunity for Chin to, you know, if they really want to the re, the unit family, first there have been to kind of like a recurring government nemesis like oh, Chin. That would have been awesome. Actually. Like if Chin, because he gets back and there's this great line at the back where Chin was trying to figure out a way he could spin it in his favor <laughs> right. to the minister. So if you look at other stories like maybe Day of the Daleks right. or Time Monster or something like, oh, here's Chin overseeing again. You could have yes. he could have been like the cousin Oliver of the unit era. <laughs> You know, just like oh shit, we like, but like Green Death would have been a really good story for oh, for Chen to be part of, and and just kind of cre- giving that air an extra level of continuity, and so these other various civil servants who kind of pop up left and right, and I think, not not that I need like a big finished spinoff of like the further adventures of Horatio Chen, right. but it's, I think like there was like a, that plotline in Angel where the. One guy at Wolfram and Hart was saying, like, well, what if we just use bureaucracy to take down Angel? <laughs> I thought that could be yeah. really funny yeah. and terrifying in its own way. True, true. And I think there, there's, and that, like, so many of the, the Doctor Who stories, I, I just see, like, I love it, but, like, I, I get these ideas of what could have been. The difficulty and, yeah. with having Chin as a regular would have been that he fucks it up so completely in this. That they, well, yeah. yes, but they probably wouldn't keep sending him. Right. Because they wouldn't want him to keep fucking it up, so we get other civil servants who do just that. He's very other times. Yeah, that's true. And if he's true. Yeah, you can see why he survived this far. And look at how many of our, how, look how many politicians in real life fuck things up, but still and manage still to get elected and keep doing it. Yes. So. Mitch McConnell, thank you very much. He is Mitch McConnell. He is Mitch McConnell, except not as smart. Just as much of a turd. Yeah, we're not a political podcast at all. <laughs> By the way. Did anyone notice that this is the first time we've heard the doctor swear? He's, well, if you consider it a swear, it's mild, but it's still somewhat out of character, and it's the only time other than the new series that we hear it. He doesn't do it on screen. It's in the book. He says, damn it, at one point. Mm. Much like he does in the Barry Lutz produced and written radio drama in the 90s, which also got some degree of controversy, but that was more to do with the word cow shit than <laughs> it was with the word damn. But this is the first time in the books and that I've seen him do that. We've had a good goddamn from uh, Ian, mm-hmm. which was shocking at the time. The Brigadier has a few dams here and there. Yeah, but we expect that from the Brigadier. Yeah. We expect a you know, stiff upper lip British officer to, that's probably the strongest oath he's going to say. He probably thinks bloody is something that is controversial too. No. Whereas the doctor saying damn it is kind of, it, it was a surprise. It really was. 
but that's just me, I guess. I love how bitchy the, the master is. There is a bit where he he's just enjoying having his little adventure and just I'm enjoying the chaos, darling, and and then he gets these little barbs like oh you could the the line about oh you could take the usual precautions nuclear blast put sticky tape on the windows or whatever yeah, yeah. you do yeah, that out. Yeah. you know and it's like yeah oh yeah, he's I think it's a very strong master story definitely yeah. He liked a good crisis in his own peculiar way. He was enjoying himself. Yes. That's the one. Yeah. Even if it's a crisis he himself is doing. Well, I guess he needs something to do other than fingering and stroking his laser gun, which he does a couple times. Have we talked about all the throbbing yet? No. no. But there is a lot of throbbing. <laughs> Again. And pulsating and tentacles. And, 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 well, Dix even has a character call it a spaghetti monster. So he has a character think what we're all thinking, which is, yeah, this is the great spaghetti monster. Yeah, it's hilarious. I should get some Lady and the Tramp figures and they could have, like, either yeah. on the axe on. Exactly. Remind me of Akira. <laughs> There was one addition that I had to look up because I was like, okay, he gave Yeats a sense of humor, but he gives him this very specifically British joke, and I had to look it up. What was it? And it was uh, look down, eyes in. And I was like, what the hell is he talking about? Because he has Yeats say that as they're trying to get this remote camera angle on the... uh, on Axos, mm-hmm. and Brigadier, the Brigadier says, "Cut the comedy eights." And it's not yeah, like, I didn't get that. It, it's um, it's a bingo reference. Oh, okay. That's what you say at the start of a bingo game, but only in Britain. One thing that I liked about this, because um, you said one of the criticisms of the TV episode that you didn't like, yeah. um, was the editing, and there is some uh, weird editing <clears throat> going on, and it would be around the part two cliffhanger where the Doctor. It's not clear, like, because they're, like, they've got this sort of container in the particle accelerator where, like, the axonite is, and then there's, like, the image in the book of the axonite being this, becoming this big mass and seething. And what happens, and as you talk about, like, you know, as kids, you watch it, all you see is it bubbling. You never see it growing. And then, and it's still inside this container. And then what happens is Windsor comes in, he's like, ah, you fool, and he... Cause him a stupid well, crank or whatever, and he, and he falls apart. And then you see this blob of axonite crawling, and it's basically a man in a in blanket, a blanket. <laughs> kind of crawling on the floor, but it's outside that, that chamber. Yes. And as for years, what I thought happened as a kid is I thought that Windsor had become that. Yeah, mm. so did I. Because they do that. Because it's so, and so this idea that, and then like, and then when they have the bit, it's kind of like what he does in the Alton invasion. You get a sense of the worldwide bit, like mm-hmm. all these different countries. All of a sudden, yes. this axonite's growing, and Which we did not have, ta- on and we don't yet. have that on screen at all. And that's something that, like, I think I like it when with these alien invasion stories, it's kind of the literary equivalent of what the new series does when all the newsreaders come on. <laughs> yes. And I'm but so I like I liked that a lot because like, you know, it wasn't until this reading of this story, I was like. Oh, so that's what's going on at yes. the end of part two. And exactly. that makes a lot more sense. Because I thought somehow this he, th- some of their victims would become axon monsters. Because, of yeah, course, yeah. I've probably just seen this after Inferno. Right. And that's what happened and in Inferno. And, you know, so it's... It does um, have some parallels. So there's... And then, like, there's a lot of, like, extended... Because it overran. So, like, some of the scenes, like, with 
when Bill and Joe meet. Yes, that, those are on the deleted scenes. Yeah, it's like it's exactly that phrase. But that's exactly. But there's what it and is. even and even at the end because like I think the TV version ends like I'm a like, galactic yeah yeah and then yeah, it's like I hate that. and then like there's a little bit of like the selling and so there's yeah. just there's some nice extensions there without it mm-hmm. and additions um, like the revenge bit where the doctor says oh no I want you to take access to Gallifrey I want revenge on the Time Lords and it's like oh that's interesting mm-hmm. because that's the first time we've heard the name Gallifrey in the books yes. I don't and know if it's the first time we've heard it in the books. It's Well, it's the first time we've heard it in the story order in the books. Well, weren't there, there some of those first Doctor stories that no, were... No, they talk about Time Lords. I don't remember mm-hmm. them ever saying Gallifrey. If any I thought of you Ian remember, Martyr let me know. I, but I thought there was one. Was there one? I thought, but I could not tell you what. I saw like there was one, but I don't remember. Because I feel like we've had, or I've listened to it. I'm in the minority, which means there definitely was one. But we haven't had one in a very long time. Because I think Ian Martyr was very... Yeah, Notorious for doing the anachronistic. You know, it might stuff. be in um, uh, Rain the of Terror. Oh, yeah, that that I think it may. That's be. where it would be because he had, has the most Time Lordy references to the Doctor. Yeah. That this is one of the first times it's named because it's not going to be named on screen until 1973. In another two years, this of course is written in 77, so it's still early to mid Dicks. So I think that's why we're enjoying it yeah. so much because yeah. he still cares, as we said. Well, and he always cares. cares more when it's Pertwee. Oh yeah, absolutely. He always cares mm. more when it's Pertwee. Absolutely. Because well, he was script editor at the time, so he. Except you get a lackluster book in Inferno, and Mind of Evil is kind of. Time when they're written, I'd say, Inferno is also squeezing seven episodes into a page count. That is true. That is true, and with this one. He's expand. He's expanding four episodes with lots of cut scenes into 141 pages. Yeah. So it's a different scene altogether. Yeah, I can see that. Um, anything else you want to say about this? Quote here that I thought was a nice example of Dix doing nice chemistry, where he's showing both the conversation between Chen and the Brigadier, and then their sort of inner monologues and fantasies about one another as well. <laughs> fantasies about one another. Chen put Josephine Grant's file back into the cabinet, making a mental note that the girl was too young and, and inexperienced for security work, a nice little black mark to go onto his reports on the Brigadier. He looked out another file, read the name on the cover, and opened it, and he looked at the Brigadier, his face outraged. Is this some kind of joke? <laughs> the blindfold over his eyes, the last cigarette, thought the Brigadier dreamily. Or maybe a last memo would be better for a civil servant. Where the Chen was speaking, the brigadier dismissed his imaginary firing squad. I'm sorry, Mr. Chen, you were saying? (laughs) (laughs) And if you look at Courtney's face in that scene, you could absolutely see the brigadier thinking exactly that. I'm going to put such a a mark on his record. Oh, I'm going to have him blindfolded. It wouldn't be nice. (laughs) Well, one of the things in... You've got this weird tension between the unit and the regular army. Oh yes, that comes that. up that has sometimes been expressed. But one of the things that I, and that, that plotline doesn't really go much of anywhere. Yeah, not really. Just um, to remind us that there is a division. To be honest. Yeah. And but what I do think is how outraged and protective of his men the brigadier is when he sees that his men have been put under arrest, oh, yes. and he gets this like. You, you know, he'll rip them a new one if they mm-hmm. need to be called out like he mm-hmm. does in the previous ones. Right. Um, but, like, you, these are my hands off. Let me... And there's there's that sort of, like, fatherly protector oh, yeah. element that came in the way he's, like, you know, watching out for... And, and you know, that's what you want a good military leader who does genuinely care about the oh, yeah. men under his command. And I really... You know, it's, again, it's one of those 
small, just a sentence or two um, Terrence Dicks moments, but I think it makes the Brigadier more than just the military stereotype. Oh, and yeah. Well, especially when he punches what's his name out, and they look at him and he says, "Sorry, impulse." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. There's there's <laughs> some very good, <laughs> some, there's some very good characterization of the brigadier in this, which is nice given what they'll do to him later in certain of the stories. They make him too much of a buffoon mm-hmm. in certain stories, as we'll see when we get there. Anything else? Uh, I just have a quote here from when the master is working with the doctor's TARDIS, and he just says, Oh no, what has he been trying to do? He knew the answer well enough. The doctor had been trying to evade the Time Lord's sentence of exile and get his TARDIS going again. What a botch up. He kicked the <laughs> console savagely. Of all the moldering, moth eaten, clapped out piles of obsolete <laughs> junk, still perhaps it. It could be made to work, <laughs> just possibly, if there's no alternative. Right. Just, yeah, and then the next paragraph goes on to say that he's thinking about his TARDIS, which is a new model, mm-hmm. and how he misses that. Which is ironic, because when you see the inside of the Master's TARDIS, it is exactly the same as the Doctor's TARDIS. Well, it's yeah. just a redress of the different angles of the same <laughs> set. Yeah. But as you'd expect. I just... As Chen busted into the control room, a chicken sandwich still clutched in his hand. <laughs> I mean, it's just... Yes. Oh, yeah. That's... Little bits like that. Yeah, this one's... Uh, it's it's interesting to see that kind of art going on with Dixon seeing when he's on fire and when he's just kind of like, I've done eight of these this year, <laughs> this is the ninth one. I, uh, I have one complaint. Mm-hmm. Yes. Axos is like a vulture, gentlemen, said the doctor dramatically. Its claws are already sunk deep into your planet and has no intention of letting go. Soon it will activate the nutrition cycle and the feast will begin. So this is an ornithological complaint. The doctor really doesn't understand vultures at all, does no. he? Literally, he I, I had the same the thought when I read it. The vulture come kill you and then refuse to let go. That's like a rabid badger or something. Right. And, that's, and that's not even... Because like in the... the Screen version is just like that's where they shoehorn the ties. It's like the claws of Axos are embedded in the <laughs> earth's crust. And it's like, they're, they're birds with claws that come right, and kill you. Yeah, it's just, it's the vulture's already, it's it's already dead and they're picking at the leftovers. That's so true. I, I, I kind of have. Okay, well, shall we do our Goodreads thing? Goodreads thing? Yeah, go Goodreads. Thing. Okay, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when you get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment on our new Goodreads book. It's not new, obviously, the group, obviously, by the way, by the deadline. So we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.44, which I think is strangely low. Mm-hmm. Yeah. TE and our Goodreads group gives us four stars, saying overall this is a pretty great read, revisiting the audiobook recently in an age of Brexit, rising nationalism and intolerance. There are several points of the story that resonate strongly as the Doctor pitches our responsibility to humanity and the world against the interests of Little England and profit for the right people. A few of the characters seem a little flat and two-dimensional, the busybody civil servant with a good education and the chauvinistic CIA agent who thinks Joe is too pretty a girl to be a spy, for example, never quite feeling like actual people. 
which is a shame because elsewhere fleeting characters are lovingly crafted with well-rounded backgrounds and realistic grumbles. You know, I was just talking about Josh. Where this novel really stands out is with Axos itself. There are a lot of sequences that Dix can render to suggest the alien nature of the Axos in ways that the limitations of television then or now could never achieve. Perhaps to contrast with the characters that fall flat, the Doctor's passions and bombacity is cranked up to 11 to Colin Baker proportions at times. It is, not, it is written not only as very pertwee, but very doctorish. Michael also replied to our Goodreads group, giving this three stars and saying, Clause of Access comes from an era when Dix wasn't given as much time to adapt serials as he had in the bookends of his Doctor Who adapting career. Clause is pretty much a straightforward adaptation of the original script, with some nifty descriptions and one or two embellishments thrown in for good measure. For example, at the end, when the serial ends with the Doctor's chagrin at being a galactic hero, Dix allows the action to continue onward with everyone saying their farewells, and the Doctor rushing out to ensure the unit guys don't jostle the TARDIS. And while the TV version of Access is hampered by the budget at the time, there are no such restrictions for the printed page. Dix allows the readers to see a large view of the world under attack from Access, including a sparkling moment when the trap of Axonite is sprung all across the globe. The Axons are a bit more threatening on the printed page, and their alliance with the Master makes a bit more sense. Even the Doctor's apparent betrayal of his friends in the fourth episode is given a bigger element of mystery and questioning if the Doctor's just playing along, or if he really intends to throw Earth to the Axons and escape. And yet, for all of this, I can't necessarily say that Axos is one of my favorite stories or adaptations of that era. And finally, Sarah Haven, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Haven gives it four stars and said, I read this to my 10-year-old a bit each night before bed. I liked it, especially the funny bits of the master, which my son also liked. They liked it in the next they room as well. well. It's their favorite. I'm going to re reread that. <laughs> I read this to my 10-year-old a bit each night before bed. I liked it, especially the funny bits with the master, which my son also liked, but he otherwise called the story not the most interesting. So, before the classroom next to us erupts in joy <laughs> again... A ping-pong tournament over there? I have no idea what's going on. Let's, uh, it's the nutrition the, cycle. Yeah. <laughs> let's get the panelist opinions going this way. So, don't... Going move. this way. Uh, out of five... I would say four stars for this one. Really? Wow, okay, why? Stingy I don't know why. Stingy? For you. That's for what I was usual. thinking, too. I yeah. thought it was behind. You're usually very kind-hearted. It's my rating. Kind-hearted in your suit. <laughs> yes. Um, no, I, I think that Dix did a really, really good job writing-wise. I think that the characters, every, everything was there for me. Like, like Allison said, this felt very much just like a good summary read. It was action-oriented. There was some mystery. There were some things that I was, like, questioning. Yeah, overall, it's, it's good. Okay. I like it. All right. I'm not saying you shouldn't. <laughs> Seven right. stars out of five. No, no, no. Alice? If I could uh, put any quote from the book on a t-shirt, it would be, They staggered wildly about the brain area, tentacles flailing helplessly. Which is nice. <laughs> Feels of my worst days. Uh, I'm going to go 3.5, which for me is really high. It really so, is. Um, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Okay. Terrific. Trey? Um, I'd go with 3.5 as well. Um, you know, the 4 is kind of where I would put, like, uh, like the John Peel, the Chase, and a 5 would be, like, a Malcolm Hulk. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say 3 is what I usually do my standard. Like, it did what it's supposed to do, and I'd give it a little bit extra, but I I can't really fault it, but I don't love it the way as much. I think, I think it does... It's good. It's the epitome of good standard dicks. <laughs> 
Yes, we all know what that is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I usually give Peel around 4.5, so the other reason why I was surprised you gave it a 4 was because that's my score for it, too. That it definitely is, but for me, it's a really strong, not even workmanly book, because I think of later Dix as workmanly. This was actually a pleasure to read. Yeah. I mean, I actually was not looking forward to watching the TV version. This, I think this may have been the first time I read this as an adult, to be honest, because a lot more about the story made sense to me so, all of a sudden. And there were certain cringy sequences on screen that were improved here and just seemed better. So that's why I'd give it four out of five. All right. Well, thank you guys. Yeah. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we get a Malcolm Hulk novelization of his own story, Colony of Space, renamed as the Doomsday Weapon, or in Dutch, De Dolikervapen. And we are going to have our guest panelist, Jason Miller, join us via Skype. He's going to be on it. He is, awesome. because he specifically requested this, and his website did a long article about it. Yep. So we're getting his expertise finally on this. So cool. We're going yeah, to be, about he'll be joining us quite yeah, soon. Part of it. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Target. Dr. Who Target Book Club Podcast all in those spaces like a crazy person. You can also visit our pristine Reddit subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperdolic forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter. We're at dwtargetbc or subscribe to us via the podcaster uh, provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, Email us at dwtargetbc.gmail.com. You should also look in the description of this episode because I'm going to be guesting on a podcast this week and another in two weeks, and I can't remember a single damn one of them, so I'll <laughs> put the description there when I am reminded what they are. Tony is very in demand. I really am. Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash y32b8f55 along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I got closer to that one. You know, these would... <laughs> Yeah, I like these two hands. Yeah. Rotating in space. Does he actually slap her at one point? No, he kind of taken science at O levels, but her bath seems to be pretty good. I feel like this is sort of a, a labyrinth-style allegory about food poisoning. Like, <laughs> this is what it feels like going on inside of you until things... But yeah, like... <laughs> but do you see, it kind of defies description. Yeah, that and was like, great. So yeah. it's... Yeah. Everyone okay? Anyone mm -hmm. need a paper towel? All ashore that's going ashore? <laughs> Let me make sure the joke is in there. CCC free. Yes, it is free.
And it's a bitch to get on. <clears throat> right. Get on the bitch. I'm so <laughs> Great. Great way to start. And luckily <laughs> we're already recording, so that works beautifully. And if you want to see how phallic the eye of Axos oh, is, is that's, that's it hanging oh, up there. <laughs> I imagined it coming up more. No, it hangs uh, down and just kind of dangles and everything. It indeed. Point towards very... anything that finds interesting in the room. And one, yeah, and, and at one point when it <laughs> wanders a bit, if you will. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's there's another view of it. Yes, very. Lovely. And then like when it's like when they're like they're getting disease, it gets like all this like it looks like small. Uh, and it's yeah. so gross. Oh, Just wait till we get creature from the pit. Oh my gosh. You've not seen Phallic too. You've seen that shit. All right. 